Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The interview of the day on the American labor economy will occur in the 9 o'clock hour with Kevin Hassett, our John Farrell, speaking with the chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Except it's not. Hassett's lame duck, he's out the door, and we all know in advance, depending on what the report is, what Dr. Hassett will say. This is the interview of the day. Jason Furman links economics with policy like no one in America. He's the liberal that conservatives have to read on the American economy, and Dr. Furman joins us right now. Jason, I'm going to cut to the chase. Do we know what technology is doing to our labor economy? I think technology is a good thing that creates a high-class problem. It gives us more options. It gives us potentially higher incomes. But if we don't invest in education, training, and the like, you know, we won't get that. Are we seeing the investment now? I mean, this is something John and I were just traveling, and you see the investment in infrastructure, the investment in education. Uh, we had a David Rubenstein interview with Melinda Gates about investment in, in young kids Where's the state of investment that on a long-term basis leads to a better labor economy? Too little on all of those. You know, young kids were about 22nd in the OECD in terms of preschool. You know, R&D. Uh, private is great. Our companies are investing in research, but we're not doing the basic research on the government side that has been falling for decades as a share of the economy. Um, and our infrastructure, you know, in many ways, it's very good. We have great ports in America, um, but there's there's a lot more we could do. Jason, I want you to give us a little bit of a clinic, an economics clinic, if possible, on the difference between GDP, what is it, versus GDI, what is it? And then walk me through the spread between them both right now and what that story wow. is telling you. You're all Abel Bernanke this morning. That's very cool. Well, this, is, this is one of my favorite topics. I'm, I'm thrilled you asked. Um, we can, as I teach my students, you can measure the economy two ways. You can add up everything everyone spends, or you can add up everyone's income, profits, etc. And in theory, those come to the same number. In practice, both of them are measured with error. And so the actual measures you get are different. Right now, over the last year, GDP has grown at 3.2%. GDI, which adds up everyone's income, has only grown at 1.8%. That is the biggest gap between those two measures that we've seen since the Great Recession. It's an unusually large gap for any time in the last 70 years. All the headline numbers are about the GDP at 3.2. Based on my analysis, historically, the truth is about halfway between. When you have two bad measures, the best thing to imperfect measures, the best thing to do is combine them. And in this case, combine them about 50-50. So I think our economy could be running you know, more like a 2 2.5% growth rate route now rather than a 3.2 a lot of people seem to think it's growing at. And that's okay, Jason. That's not bad. But what is it about adverse scenarios that explains why there is this massive spread between both GDI and GDP? You know, it's just pure measurement error. It's not something you can explain because in theory they're the same and you're just adding stuff up and it's yeah. two different sets of data and sometimes they give you different answers and that's why um, you want to combine them. And that's actually especially important around turning points. I mean, GDP 
know, in the middle of 2007, GDP was growing at nearly a 5% rate. It looked great. The economy looked really, really hot, um, you know, as, as late as December 2007. But, um, you know, but it actually was turning. And that was wow. showed up in the revised data years later. Along uh, the lines of John's wonderful questions on how we parse and split the economy, Dr. Furman, we have the idea of a better than good domestic economy and then you bolt on trade dynamics and it's not as pretty, obviously, trade war and all that. Do you as an advisor to presidents aggregate in the sum of the economy or right now should our listeners and viewers, should they partition a domestic performance versus a really ugly trade side or external side right now? Yeah, I mean, the, the external side is about 13% of the U.S. economy. So yeah. I think sometimes people make the mistake of you know, overstating it. You know, the steel tariffs, I think they were a bad policy, but I never expected a large macro consequence of them. Now, if you layer the Mexico on top of the China, you're now starting to talk about you know, percent, potentially more than a percent of GDP, at which point you're talking about high not the difference between a boom and a recession, but definitely you know, increasing the risks of a recession by, by, a, by a reasonable amount. In some ways, Jason, do you think the issue with Mexico might be more important for the domestic U.S. economy than the tension with the Chinese at the moment? Oh, yeah. Our exports to Mexico are about twice as large as a share of our economy, and that actually understates it. If you look at value-added, all the things that move back and forth, <clears throat> right. um, it's, it's a lot more than that. And the 5% tariff, you know, if, if only 5% of the content comes from Mexico, that's like 100% tariff on Mexico. If a right. third of our auto parts are coming from there, I, th I think it's a potentially really big deal for the U.S. economy. What's the log linear function of 5% tariffs, 10% tariffs, and up, up, up we go? Mm -hmm. What's the impact as President Trump increases the tariffs on Mexico over time? Yeah, I think it's I think it's not log linear. I think it goes the other way. Um, yeah. That uh, you know, for, for each increment you do up, um, it it could potentially get even worse. Do we um, know that, yeah. or is it a mystery? Oh, people people work, people turn through those numbers and 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 tend 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 to find that. Um, what you is a mystery is what does it do to expectations? You know, if this thread is pulled back later today on Mexico, will businesses that are building supply yeah. chains think that the threat is gone forever or will they right. feel they need to redo their supply chains just in case it comes back i, yeah. I have a strong suspicion about the answer to that but i can't prove it jason Furman, uh, what a joy yesterday to speak to austin goolsby of chicago about alan kruger's new book on rockonomics this is the final book of uh, alan kruger who uh, recently died jason Furman, uh when we look at alan kruger's work it is about the minimum wage do you have any study yet that $15 an hour is causing harm? We've only done $15 an hour in high-wage places. There was one study around Seattle. I think, unfortunately, it was flawed, and I wouldn't take anything from okay, it either good to way. Um, I personally would be nervous if we very rapidly went to $15 an hour um, for you know, Alabama, New Mexico, and... Um, Maine. You know, those are much lower wage places than Seattle or the parts of California that have gone there already. 
Jason, it's great to catch up with you Thank on this payroll so Friday. Really appreciate your time. Really interesting stuff. Jason Furman there, the former counsel of Economics Chair. John Farrell, why don't you bring in Dr. Coronado on the 47 flavors of Jobs Day today? Let's do it right now. So if Payrolls Friday is what? 10, 11 minutes away. The median estimate here at Bloomberg in our survey is 175,000. I guess 177. is 263. Julia, you're looking for 10K south of the median estimate. It's not a big move lower from there. No. But what has been impressive, and we usually discuss it every Friday of the first Friday of every single month here at Bloomberg, is just how strong this economy has yeah. been able to produce in and around 200K every yeah. single month. Can we keep yeah. doing that, Wait. Julia? way above what we think is sort of equilibrium, which is closer to 100 to 125K. So that has been sustained by improvement in labor force participation amongst prime age workers. And that kind of faded in the last couple of months. But I expect that to be one area where we see it return this month. So I expect a pop up in prime age participation. I still see an upward trend there. And that that's what helps sustain these these gargantuan job gains month after month. So I do think there's some room to run there, too. I, prime age participation for both men and women, and again, we're talking about 25 yeah. to 54-year-olds here, it's still below last cycle and certainly the 90s cycle. So there's no reason that these workers can't re-engage with the workforce. Well, Julia, let's talk about that. There's some people that think this may be unique, this cycle might be unique, and maybe the participation rate can stay somewhere in and around the low 60s. Where do you see it heading? Mm. Well, we do have the downward pressure from the retiring baby boomers. So that is sort of a demographic reality that may fluctuate to some greater or lesser degree depending on whether they retire earlier or later. But we know that's a depressing force that's going to hold it relatively flat. And the question really revolves around how much younger workers are able to engage um, and and return after periods outside the the labor force. Uh, Julia, uh, uh, Mrs. Keene emails in and says, (laughs) Dr. Coronado... Please define prime age. Is that prime age. 55 to 65? Or is that 59 to 62? What's So I don't mean to say that you're not prime in your prime, Tom, because you certainly are. Thank you. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and prime, you know, perhaps we should expand the definition. Perhaps we should. Yes, I, I agree with that. <laughs> what is prime age? Seriously, to, to, to people like you, what is prime age? The, 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 the typical definition from the Bureau of Labor Statistics statistics is people aged 25 to 30, excuse me, to 54. So you're definitely post-schooling, you know, whether you've gotten a a bachelor's and or a master's degree, you're probably largely done. And then uh, you're probably not yet moving into retirement. So that's, that's when you should. Well, I got that one nailed. (laughs) What what, 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 is the prime age change over 30, 40, 50 years? I mean, do you shift that out and expand uh, to an older audience like we're all doing with our kids? We I mean, so the BLF has not done that, but, you know, you can expand it. Certainly you can look at whatever age groups that you're interested in. And we have seen a trend toward later retirements both for economic reasons, because people took a huge hit in the Great Recession and couldn't retire, um, and then also 
because people are, you know, living longer, they're more in service sector jobs where they can work longer. Uh, and so we are seeing people engage in the labor force for longer and longer. If you talk to people like David John at AARP, who spoke at the Chicago Fed right, conference, right. he thinks there's a lot of scope for engagement of older workers, you know, even on a part-time basis. Yeah, like that me. a lot of people do want to engage in the labor force at older age. Yeah. The Bloomberg, and of course, this is from uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, folks. We're making jokes about it, but their granularity of participation is wonderful. They have here, John, a statistic. U.S. labor force participation for World War II, Korean War, and Vietnam males, which has obviously been declining with death. But, but I mean, the granularity is extraordinary. That's some real detail. G- yeah, Julia yeah. Coronado, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Julia, thank My you. My pleasure. Before I'm going to be sticking with us, you know, as we approach the payrolls. Oh, I did not know that. Some quick reaction with Julia. So let's digest some of that data, shall we? 75K, the median estimate, 175, a big downside surprise in the FX market, a weaker dollar, down a third of 1%, back to a 96 handle on the dollar index in the bond market. This is how treasuries shape up. Yields coming in four basis points on tens, coming in seven basis points on a two-year yield. Your two-year yield, 181, your 10-year, 2.0. 0.8%. The interesting part, though, risk assets hanging in there. Futures still just about positive, up five points and positive two-tenths of 1%. But looking at the economic data, Tom, to Julia's point earlier in the program, there were some concerns around the big census story and how volatile it might make the headline number. If you look at the change in private payrolls, 90K, that's a massive downside surprise as well. The estimate was once said before. Yeah, and, and with revisions down as well, Dr. Coronado could help us uh, with that. Julia, we get a report out that has some constructive elements. I think, I think we need to go to the ADP moldy double-digit number over to non-farm payrolls, 75, the two-month revision. This is, some, this is important, folks, negative mm-hmm. 75, 1,000. One month doesn't make a report, but... If this extrapolates out, what happens? Yeah, this is a worrisome report. I mean, we're seeing uh, the weakness isn't just doesn't look to be concentrated in one sector. It looks we got the expected weakness in manufacturing and goods producing sectors, but also weakness in private service sectors. So retail was job losses. Information technology saw job losses, and the government actually subtracted seventeen, excuse me, fifteen thousand workers instead of adding about the same, which is what was mostly expected. Do you see your census so, in there? Did you yeah. have time yet to see a census statistic? So, so it looks like census is not only not hiring, but the uh, actually most of the job losses in the government sector were on the state and local side. So, yeah, um, yeah a, lot, a, lot of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of weakness here. You know, to see the service sector crack like this is, is something we definitely need to keep an eye on. Okay, Julia Coronado, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate the perspective today with Macro Policy uh, Perspective. Working in fixed income, but with a wonderfully holistic, and I should also point out mathematical basis, Jeffrey Rosenberg of BlackRock. Jeff, I want to rip up the script right now. And go to Walton out on Twitter, who's got a brilliant observation. Let me quote it exactly. Jeff Rosenberg, just like we quote the president when he tweets. 
I wonder how retirees in Germany are supposed to live off of a negative fixed income. Where do people in Germany think the money for retirees comes from? The tooth fairy? Jeff, this this was something in London, a theme. How do savers exist in negative interest rate nations? Well, they, they can't put their savings into safe assets. And um, you basically force savers out of the currency, which means, you know, something U.S. investors don't think a lot about. But in the rest of the world, there's a lot more willingness. And and when you have a negative interest rate structure, you're forced to take your money outside of the U.S., outside of your home country. You know, you look in Japan, where they've had zero interest rates for a much longer experience. It's just a much longer uh, experience with foreign investing, and you're forced to do that. So you have to move out the risk spectrum. It's uncomfortable. Um, Or you have to change your expectations in terms of how you plan for retirement and what your expected return is. And even though we don't face negative interest rates, we face the same issues of lower expected returns. Jeff, I'm looking at the German 10-year yield. I'm looking at, folks, what's called a two-standard deviation study. You and I took this final year where, you know, we had to take a break because we were going to Fort Lauderdale or whatever. Rosenberg did standard deviations in fourth grade. I I mean, Jeff Rosenberg, I'm sorry, the vector on the German 10-year yield speaks of instabilities to come. What are those instabilities? Well, The German 10-year yield has been declining alongside uh, the U.S. yield and global yields, all pricing in a a global growth slowdown. The difference is they're starting from a much lower point. So right now, the German 10-year yield is negative uh, negative 0.255, and and it's on a very steep downward trajectory. Now, a lot of the other stories in the rest of the world away from the U.S. is that the growth has been slowing there as well. Uh, There's a lot more challenge. When when the ECB is at the effective lower bound, um, they have fewer tools. This was yesterday's news in terms of the ECB meeting, uh, and they're they're going to have to continue to try to support yeah. with perpetually you know uh, negative interest yeah. rates. Jeff Rosenberg, we're going to fold you over to being a trade expert. We see futures advance; they explode from flat. Dow futures up seventy eight, S and P futures up eleven. I think it's called a bull market and the yields churn. Here is the sequence of headlines that have come out uh, moments ago. I'm going to be very careful with this, folks, because this is a moving uh, target. The president of Mexico feels Mexico thinks economy is doing fine. We respect rating companies' points of view. Of course, two rating companies uh, modifying their constructive view on uh, Mexico. The oil company, Pemex, has no problem to restructure debt the oil company, to start producing more by year end. He goes on to say, um, I am optimistic we will reach a deal with the United States. I will review my stance on U.S. situation on Saturday. And Bloomberg would note that the Mexican peso erases losses as the U.S. payrolls, uh, (laughs) excuse me, information uh, came in. This shows, Jeff Rosenberg, if we get constructive Mexico and Chinese Trade talk, how markets flip on a dime, doesn't it? 
Well, it's been the issue, and and the issue is that going back to May sixth and 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 the China breakdown, that markets were really expecting a very different outcome than what they got. They were expecting a deal to go through. Not necessarily sure how much teeth that deal would have, and that whole expectation has been undermined. And in the aftermath, has been a ratcheting up. Now, the Mexico thing was a new development. Let's use tariffs to address a non-trade related issue, which only further heightens uncertainty. But the but the punchline here yeah. is that policy has moved from expansionary and supportive right. to to contractionary through the degree it increases uncertainty and businesses don't like uncertainty uncertainty is bad for growth jeff i want to get a little wonky here we can do that with a gentleman from carnegie mellon and and that is the left tail of all that we observe we had a wonderful conversation this morning with our cameron Kreis about the difference in yield between three month and two year and then the difference in yield between two year and ten year and the dynamics there are extraordinary what do these extraordinary yield curve discontinuities, what do they mean to the stability of the real risk part of the curve, the left tail? Well, it's, it's clearly, and this has been the story for a while, that the bond market is, is telling you about its concerns everything we've been talking about this morning from the from payroll report to uncertainties created by trade is a decline in growth and a potential shock Thank to you. growth. And that's what the yeah. bond market is, this is, is, is saying and expecting. I don't, this is why we have Jeff Rosenberg on, folks. This is so, so, so important. There are four, five, three, seven things that always make a determinant of price and on the fisherian rule going back a zillion years irving fisher it's you see it in the bond market price up yield down or the other way as well and jeff i agree with you that growth worries have overwhelmed every other analysis is that correct that, that is correct, and it's a real pivot from where we were only, you know, six, seven weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. Before the pivot on trade, the, the concern was on inflation and what that meant for the ability of the Fed to raise rates and the po- process of normalization. And, and this is occurring, again, in an environment where global growth has been weakening, and, and with the weakening in the outlook from trade and uncertainty, you added to a sense that this is really a new risk to a recessionary outcome. And that's what the bond markets basically started pricing in. And then with that comes the expectation, of course, that the Fed is going to react. And now all the narrative around the insurance cut and when will they move and how much will they move by. And the bond market's pricing in a lot. Uh, Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much. Kevin Hassett is out of the wonderful economics program at the University of Pennsylvania. He has been on the show in different guises many times, recently as chairman of President Trump's Council of Economic Advisors. He has been someone who has always pushed for free trade. It is good to have a Jobs Day conversation uh, with him. Kevin Hassett is leaving the White House. Here he is with John Farrow. Now we can get the Trump administration's views on the jobs report. We're joined on TV and on radio by Kevin Hassett, Council of Economic Advisers Chairman. Kevin, great to see you as always. Let's just start with that payrolls report. Your initial thoughts, Kevin, on that downside surprise. 
Well, you know, I think that it was a little bit below our expectation and the market expectation, but there were some special factors. I think one of the special factors that we were following closely that I've not seen a lot of people talk about is the impact of the flooding, which, you know, shut down I-29, uh, made it so that a whole bunch of the ports couldn't operate. And our estimate is that that knocked maybe about 40,000 jobs off the number. And if you add that back in, then, you know, it's pretty much close to a normal up and down. For sure, there's a little bit of job slowing, but we're still looking at, I think, you know, controlling for that, a three-month average that's probably you know, next month going to look in the 170, 180 range, which is about what we've had for the last two years. Kevin, just in terms of the trade story and the damage that it may or may not be doing to certain industries right now, if you look at primary metal, steel, aluminum, metal fabricators, all down for a third straight month here, many economists predicted this would happen, Kevin. Do you think that is a consequence, a result of the tariffs of this administration weighing on those sectors at the moment? Well, I think that, you know, for steel and aluminum, the tariffs definitely, you know, have helped. And, and you know, I've looked at the, the numbers and they inflected quite a bit uh, when they went in. The, the thing about the jobs number, just, just to pivot, I've heard a lot of uh, folks also uh, talking about how well maybe the jobs number reflects, uh, you know, the trade problems. But remember that this is May, and so this uh, jobs number comes before anything regarding Mexico. And also the only thing that really happened in May was that the uh, Chinese talks hit a roadblock. And, and, and so I think that it's hard to imagine that a roadblock of the Chinese talks could have a really big macroeconomic effect. And so, and so I think that looking at the impact of trade on the numbers right now, for sure there are specific things and specific industries. But overall, I don't think it's a really big part of the story. Kevin, certainly that persistent tension, though, is weighing on financial conditions. It's weighing on confidence, and it seems to be weighing on investment as well. There is quite a clear read-through. Are you saying there's not? Well, I think that absolutely uncertainty, you know, can be a negative for the economy, but there's upside risks and downside risks. Sure. And I think that uh, with China, you know, if we if we com- remember how happy markets tended to be every day that we got closer to a deal, you know, if we at the G20 talks can can finally, you know, get that thing over the hump, then that's a really big upside risk for the outlook this year. We would all and love so I think that, to see that. that you know, we're trying ref- we're, we're we're shooting for yeah, but we're shooting for reform, right? And and I think that reform is is uncertain. Uh, but I think that if you look at how broken our trade relationship with China was, that it makes sense for the president to, to uh, prioritize reform. And many, many economists would agree with you. It's an economic tool for a positive economic outcome. Mexico is very, very different. It's an economic tool for a political outcome. So talk to me about what is happening with talks and why you think progress is being made. What is it about these talks where the progress has been made, Kevin? What specifically? Right. Well, the specifics are going to be presented to the president when he lands about 4.30 today, and then he's going to weigh all his options. But, but you know, there have been ongoing talks uh, throughout the week. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has been meeting with the foreign minister of Mexico. And, uh, you know, my briefing on their talks have been that they've made a lot of progress, that a lot of the material things that our professionals have said that, that need to be done uh, by Mexico to help us secure the border that they, they're agreeing to do. I don't know if they're going to ha- go all the way to what the president wants, but I'm sure the president will have some important uh, evidence to weigh when he lands at the end of the day. In the meantime, Kevin, have the Council of Economic Advisers modeled the impact of tariffs on the U.S. economy, tariffs on Mexico and what it means for U.S. GDP? You know, our, our job is to is to provide uh, material advice to the president on all of his decisions, but uh, unless we publish it, then we're not uh, meant to talk about it. And, and so, you know, I can't talk about what I presented to the president or not. Well, you can talk to me about Sorry. the kind of advice you're giving to the president and the kind of damage you think it would do to the U.S. economy. Do you think it could be positive for the U.S. economy? I, you know, I, I think that, that the crucial thing for the CEA chair is to advise the president, uh, you know, and to make that advice, uh, you know, be between them. Oh, come and on, Kevin. And when decisions are made. No, it's true. And then Kevin, when if that was the case, you wouldn't not, be on you're TV. You're not a loyal team player if Kevin. you disagree with the decision. If, Kevin, you know, no, are you saying you disagree the with the decision then? 
No, that's what you're trying to. No, to I'm say. asking you. Uh, did you disagree with the decision? I think that the president is right to emphasize reform. And with Mexico, I think we have a border crisis. And if you weigh the costs of uh, of the border crisis, then it's very easy to think that you know the leverage that he's gained with Mexico could easily uh, pass a cost benefit test. Did you disagree on the tariff decision? <laughs> Come on. Kevin, did you disagree on the tariff decision? Did you agree with him? Oh, uh, I'm not supposed to uh, talk about my uh, my private conversations with the president. But, well, I'm you know, not asking I, you I about the private conversations uh, no, no, with the my, president. My I'm job not is to say Kevin, if you do this. No, can, let, let sure, me talk about please, CEA please carry on. My please. job is to say if you do this, here's what happens. If you do that, that's what happens. You but know, isn't so your the, job the also to inform well us as you come on this program to tell us what you also think about the damage that could be done from the tariffs? I mean, you don't have to reveal the private uh, conversation with the president. Please tell me in your assessment. Do you think it could weigh on U.S. GDP this year if these tariffs go into effect on Monday? Uh, I think that uh, the 5% tariff is a much worse problem for Mexico, as I've said in previous interviews this week, than it is for the U.S. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, beyond that, we'll have to wait and see. I think Mexico is highly motivated because of that to make sure that that doesn't happen by helping us secure the border. Kevin, many people think that you're stepping down because you do disagree with the president on the tariffs. Just. Put the record straight no. there for us. As you are on your way out, what are your thoughts? What actually happened? Oh, I mean, what do you, what do you mean what actually happened? Uh, it's, they're utterly separate things. The CEA chair is almost all you could go back and look uh, serve for about two years. Uh, yep. I've got a son who's about to be a senior in high school, is the youngest, so that's a good time to spend more time with my family. And uh, to, it's also a normal circle of life for CEA to hand the, uh, the slot off to somebody else after a couple of years. We'd love to know what's coming next for you, Kevin. What is coming next? And have you spoken oh. to the president? Yeah, I really don't know yet, uh, but thanks for, for asking. But, but you know, I, I really haven't uh, made any firm What about a job at the Fed? Steps. Would you be interested in a job at the Fed, <laughs> Kevin? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You can rule that one out. Zero chance. You can rule that one out. Kevin Hassett, always great to get your thoughts. And yeah, uh, your thanks. thoughts on the things you can't tell us as well. Kevin Hassett there, thank you very much. <laughs> Good luck for the rest of the month before yeah, you step you. down. Thank you for joining us, as always. Uh, John Farrow, uh, in conversation with the Chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.